Good evening, everyone. How's everybody doing? Awesome. I think that's the best thumbs up and cheers. Even got a cheers in the back. That's a great night. We are going to continue in our series called The Kingdom Parables. We're in a series where we're looking at the parables of Jesus from the Gospels and parables where Jesus tells us about his kingdom, what his kingdom is like, uh, what his kingdom is about. And tonight, as you could tell from the reading that Jeff just did for us, uh, we're going to learn a little bit about self-righteousness. Who's excited to hear about self-righteousness tonight? <laughs> That's right. That is my point exactly. Uh, we have this love-hate relationship with self-righteousness. How many of you have ever seen self-righteousness in another person and thought, I just love that person? I want to be near that person. My heart is warmed when I'm around this person. Usually when we see self-righteousness in another person, we hate it. We're repulsed by it. Uh, we are revulsed by it. Unless, of course, it's the Dowager Countess from Downton Abbey. I don't know. She has this rare gift <laughs> for being self-righteous. And it's like, oh, aren't you just the sweetest and the cutest? Like, it's endearing when she does it. Uh, I think it helps that she's like super grandmotherly and British and can be self-righteous. And it's like, well, that's cute. But most of the time we see self-righteousness in other people and we think that's really gross and I don't like that. But on the other hand, we can be really tempted by self-righteousness. It can be really, really appealing. For me, I think the moments that I struggle with self-righteousness usually unfold like this. So there are times in my life when I think about my shortcomings, the ways that I fall short, the ways that I struggle with sin or the ways that I um, struggle to do what is right. And I don't like to think about those things. I don't like to think about my failures. I don't like to dwell on that. And then I'll do something relatively decent. <laughs> I won't call it righteous, but I'll do something that's not the fullest extent of my sinful nature as possible. And I'll call that good. And then I want to start focusing on that. Like I did that well because it feels good. It's a break. It's a release. And it's relief from thinking about all the times that I actually fall short of the things that I should do. Feels good to think about the things that I do that are good. It makes us feel better about ourselves. But the problem I run into often is that it goes from feeling better about myself to feeling better than others. And when I go from feeling better about myself because I did something relatively well or did something good, and then I start feeling better about myself and then feel better than others is that I stop loving other people. <laughs> and all of a sudden, now I'm not in the territory of righteousness. I'm not doing what is righteous if I'm not loving other people. But in those moments when we do something well and we are proud of that and it feels like a break or a relief from all the things that we do that are not so great, it can feel a bit euphoric. It can feel a little addictive at times. This break from looking at all of my shortcomings. You, you look back on your day and you're like, man, look at all these things that I did that were poor. But then you latch onto one thing that was good. And it's like, that feels good. And then if you can add on top of that, well, I'm doing X better than so-and-so. Then it feels really good sometimes. Tonight, I'd like to talk about self-righteousness and talk about a few things. First of all, I want to talk about the fact that some people will equate Christianity with self-righteousness. 
that in our culture, it's not uncommon for a lot of people to assume that Christianity equals self-righteousness. There was a book that came out just about 10 years ago called Unchristian. Did anyone read this book? It was um, written by some folks who do some research with Barna. That's a research group that does a lot of research on religion and, and Christianity. And they concluded that many Americans, many, many Americans, think of Christians as self-righteous people, that they're relatively arrogant about their moral capacities and their moral track record, and they can look down on other people that they think are less moral. And this kind of an idea makes its way into our comedy, into our sitcoms. Uh, So from The Office, uh, who is the self-righteous character from The Office? (laughs) Angela. I got like three answers there. (laughs) Dwight has his own way of being self-righteous, but he can at least own up to some faults at times. But Angela is like, she takes the cake. She's obviously the evangelical Christian in The Office. There's this episode where they're talking about early episode in the series, and they're doing, what is it, Desert Island? And they're asking, what books would you take? And she said, I'd take The Purpose Driven Life. Clearly an evangelical Christian. And then she said, what did she also say? I would take The Da Vinci Code so I could what? So I could burn The Da Vinci Code because it's full of devilry and whatnot. So Angela from The Office is the evangelical Christian, and people have learned to hate Angela from The Office. I read one person's comments online about her one fan of the show. She said this, Angela is a horrible, horrible person. So completely hypocritical, judgmental, condescending, immoral, bitter, selfish, mean, and just awful. And all of that in a package that is just bursting with pomposity, self-righteousness, and disdain for others. Oftentimes when people think about Christians, especially evangelical Christians, they equate Christianity with self-righteousness. And in some ways, evangelical Christians, we've earned that title. Sadly, the history of American Christianity has plenty of moments in which Christians have been self-righteous. And I am guilty of that in my own life history. But tonight, I'd like to invite everyone to remember, especially if you're someone who's questioning Christianity or maybe interested in it, but you have some questions or maybe you're even here and you're kind of skeptical about Christianity. First of all, we're really glad that you are with us. You're among friends because even believing Christians in this room still have our questions about Christianity. And many of the questions that you're asking right now, other people in this room have also asked. And so we're so glad that you are here with your questions. And one thing I'd like to invite you to consider tonight is that Christianity cannot be equated with self-righteousness because Jesus himself condemned outright self-righteousness. But tonight I'd also like to talk about the fact that we should be aware and on the alert for self-righteousness. It's harmful to us and it's harmful to others. And then finally, I want to invite all of us not just to try to avoid self-righteousness. If we, if we try to avoid self-righteousness, we might actually miss the mark. But if we fix our eyes steadfastly and focusedly upon God, there's no way that we can walk away being self-righteous. When we see him in the, the splendor and majesty of his complete holiness, there's no way we can look at ourselves and say, well, I'm a pretty righteous person. If we fix our gaze upon the God of the Bible, there's no way we can assume that we are self-righteous. 
but there's also the joy that comes from then realizing that this God who is completely holy has sent his son to lovingly redeem us from every moment that we have been sinful. So those are the things I'd like to talk with us about tonight. God, we are so grateful to you for your word. Thank you so much for revealing yourself to us. We want to thank you that you didn't just give us moral principles, but your word is the history of what you have done to save us and to redeem us and also to redeem the entire world. That you are in the process of undoing all the damage that sin has brought into this world. We want to thank you that by grace, through what Jesus has done on the cross, you make it possible for us to be forgiven and that you also make it possible for us to experience joy and nearness with you, fellowship with you, deep joy with one another. And we also have the promise and the hope that one day we will live face to face with you in a renewed heaven, in a renewed earth, where nothing will be tainted by sin ever again. So Lord, teach us tonight about yourself and teach us of your love and your grace, but also teach us about how you would have us to love one another. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we open this uh, parable, there are two very different prayers and two very different people praying two different kinds of people who are praying and they give two different prayers. So Luke 18 verses 9 through 10 says this, he, meaning Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So just a little bit about these two characters. Pharisees were often uh, known in their day as being people who were extremely religious. And sometimes Pharisees get an unnecessarily bad rap because we assume that all Pharisees were like the Pharisee in this parable. Not all the Pharisees were like this Pharisee in the parable. Some of them were. But most tended to be very devout Jewish people. They poured over the scriptures, poured over the Old Testament, trying to know God's law, know it in depth, try to really imbibe and absorb and memorize the scriptures, and then try to live faithfully to God's laws and commands in God's world. They were very serious about their, their, um, their religion and about trying to be faithful to God. But some of the Pharisees, a good number who are described in the, in the Gospels, start veering off track and they take this desire and devotion to God and end up twisting it in really unhelpful ways. And we'll see how that unfolds in this particular parable. But they were pretty respected leaders within the Jewish community. Higher ups, fairly elite, who had lots of um, authority and good reputation within the Jewish community. But then there were tax collectors. Tax collectors are kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum. These were Jewish people who started collecting money for Rome on Rome's behalf. Rome was the conquering nation over Israel at the time. And so uh, these tax collectors would be hired by Rome to collect taxes for Rome. And often what they would do is they'd, they'd come to your door and they'd say, taxes are due. And they'd say, how much do I owe? And they wouldn't give you an itemized receipt. <laughs> they would say, you owe X. But often what they do is, Instead of just charging you the tax that you, that you owed to Rome, they would inflate that number, and then they would get rich. They would be raking in a lot of money off of the top of the tax, but you would have no way of knowing because they wouldn't tell you what you actually owed. 
So tax collectors could often get wealthy off of the backs of fellow Jews, and they were despised for this. They were practicing extortion in many cases, which is a sin, according to the Old Testament, and they were despised as a result of this, thought to be working and colluding with Rome and taking advantage of their fellow fellow Jews. And so these are the two figures who go into the temple to pray. And already in Jesus' day, no one would have heard these first two sentences out of Jesus' mouth and thought, the tax collector's the really righteous guy. Every single person would have thought, there's the Pharisee who's devout, who's godly, who's pouring over the scriptures, who's praying all the time, who's trying to keep God's law. This is the, the righteous person. Everyone would have heard this and thought of the Pharisee as the righteous person. But then Jesus goes in and says more. He tells us about this, uh, the Pharisee's self-righteous prayer. In verses 11 and 12, Jesus said this, The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So the first thing I want us to see is this man has a benchmark for his righteousness. He has a benchmark for how holy he's been. But what's his benchmark? It's other people. His conclusion that he is righteous is based upon comparing himself to others. He says, I'm not like other men, like extortioners, unjust, uh, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And then he goes on to say, here are the things that I do. So I don't do these things. I'm not like these wicked men over here. And here are the wonderful, super holy, awesome, righteous things that I do do. I fast twice a week, which is more than Jews were called to fast. I give tithes of all that I get. Commentators tell us that he was actually giving more than was asked of him. So he's doing more than the Old Testament law asks of him. And what is his conclusion? If his benchmark is comparing himself with other people, he concludes, I'm awesome. (laughs) I'm very, very righteous. Think about this. Think about his prayer. He says, thank you, God. He might as, he's essentially done praying at that moment, right? Thank you, God. Does he appeal to God anymore in that sense? No. He's not saying anything about God. Thank you, God, that I am not like other men. The rest of his prayer is about him. Is he even praying at this point? If his prayer is anything, it's like, thank you, God, that I'm so awesome and I'm on your team. You're welcome. It makes me think of the song from Moana, What can I say except you're welcome? Could you imagine using this approach on Valentine's Day? (laughs) Honey, I just want to thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not slothful and lazy, which is not true. I make all kinds of money. Would your spouse at all be interested in comments like that? (laughs) Guys, don't try that. And not just in February. Don't ever try that. But notice some of the problems with this way of thinking. First of all, it's really easy to conclude. It's really easy to conclude that you're righteous if you compare yourself to fellow fallen, broken, and sinful human beings. If that's your benchmark for what righteousness is, It's comparing yourself to other people. We're all fallen. We're all broken. We're all sinful. Of course, it's going to be easier to think of yourself as righteous if that's your benchmark, especially if you get to choose which sinners you're going to compare yourself to. (laughs) 
I'd love to ask this, I mean, this is a parable, so this particular Pharisee is not a real man. It's a fictional character. Jesus told this parable as an analogy to make a point. But it would be so cool to actually have a conversation with the guy. He says, I'm not like other men. (laughs) I'd say, oh, really? Which ones? Well, you know, I'm not like the extortioners, the adulterers, the unjust. Okay, well, how holy are you compared to Anna, who's described in the Gospels as a woman who devoted herself day and night to fasting and praying in the temple? How, how holy and righteous are you if we compare yourself to her? How righteous are you compared to John the Baptist? Let's, let's not just pick and choose the people you can compare yourself to. Of course you're going to look holy and righteous if you compare yourself to some of these people. You can justify so much behavior in this way. Jason and I were talking about this last week. Had lunch together and we're talking about this sermon. And There's so many ways you can justify your behavior if you're saying, at least I'm not committing murder. At least I'm not practicing genocide. At least I'm not eating at McDonald's. (laughs) My experience is that in high school, I got really into a habit of comparing myself with other people and thinking that I was pretty righteous. When I was convicted of sin, when sin revealed itself to me, when God showed me my sin, I would comfort myself with the thought, well, at least I go to church and pray more than so-and-so. At least I'm listening to mostly Christian music and not listening to all this other stuff like so-and-so. So I would belittle the sin that the Lord did reveal to me by comparing myself to others who I thought were worse off than I am. But a second problem this man runs into is that he misunderstands what righteousness is and is therefore blind to his own unrighteousness. In particular, he doesn't love other people. The way he prays in the temple makes it really clear that he's not a kind of guy who loves other people. So he says, look what he says that he does. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. These are pretty ritualistic type of things. They're ritual commands that we're supposed to follow. At least the Old Testament Jews were supposed to follow. And Christians in our own way have a way that we're supposed to practice some of these. But he's looking at things that are rituals. But he doesn't say anything about, Lord, look at how I love other people. Look at how I actively care for other people. If anything, look at what he says about this tax collector. He says, I'm not like other men, not even like this tax collector. Is that a picture of loving this other man? Especially if this Pharisee, as the text seems to hint at, is standing in a prominent place in the temple, and the tax collector is cowering far off, and this Pharisee is willing to say, I'm not like this guy, and point him out in public? That is not a picture of loving others. Leviticus 19.18, Old Testament law, command from God given to the Jews, says you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So here God is saying, one of the laws that I have for you is that you shouldn't practice vengeance against other people. Vengeance is something that you are tempted to do when somebody's actually wronged you, right? So this isn't just talking about loving people who are innocent, who haven't wronged you. This is a command that comes when when God is saying, don't practice vengeance when somebody wrongs you. Actually love one another. This is a command to be loving towards those who have wronged us. So in the Old Testament, we're told not only to fast and not only told 
to, to pray um, and to tithe and these kinds of things. But the Old Testament also highlighted this love of other people. What should be a gracious and forgiving love of other people. And yet, this guy doesn't reference any of that. He thinks he's great, that he's really righteous with the rituals, but he really doesn't do well with loving other people. Klein Snodgrass is a New Testament scholar who summarizes it this way. He says, the Pharisee misunderstands righteousness as obedience to a ritual apart from love of neighbor. The Pharisee thinks he is true to the Torah's stipulations. The Torah is the Old Testament law, but he does not see the Torah as intent of love for neighbor. So he misunderstands what righteousness is. He thinks it's keeping these particular ritual commands. And he thinks he's doing really well at those, but he doesn't even see that he's actually not loving this tax collector and, and that he's actually breaking the law. He's not being righteous. But he's completely blind to it. And then he mistreats this man. Or as Jesus opens this parable, he says, there were those who trusted in their own righteous, righteousness and they treated others with what? with contempt. When we start trusting in our own righteousness, we have this false assumption that we're right with God, that we've maintained a righteous standard and therefore can stand in his presence boldly and um, unashamedly and even pridefully, but then it can cause us to not see how we are actually hurting and, and wounding others around us. We think so well of our own righteousness that we think poorly of other people who are not as righteous as we are. But once we stop treating other people well, and once we look down upon them, all of a sudden we're not in the territory of righteousness. But we don't even see it because we're looking at these particular categories of righteousness that we're good at keeping. And this kind of self-righteousness is really, really harmful. It's harmful to others and it's harmful to ourselves. When we uh, assume that we have been righteous enough in our own power, in our own strength, it's harmful to others because it doesn't put us in a position to identify with other people's weaknesses. When you start taking pride in your own moral righteousness, it's really hard to identify with other people when their sin seems obvious to you. It's hard to identify with their weakness. I remember this as a kid. Sometimes I'd be working with my dad and he would get a little angry. Um, and I just remember being kind of critical of my dad. Why is he so angry? Why does he say the things that he does? Why can't we just work? Like this is a fun project. Why can't we just work? And I was really judgmental of him. But then I got older and realized what adult stress is like. <laughs> and when I get into projects now, I'm like, oh, I get it, dad. And all of a sudden now I can identify with where my dad was for so many years. In our self-righteousness, we can't identify with others and their weaknesses. In our self-righteousness, we can't be compassionate to others because we wonder, why don't you get your act together the way that I've gotten my act together? When we're struggling with self-righteousness, it's hard for us to be forgiving or patient with others. So self-righteousness does not put us in a position to love others. It's actually harmful to others. But self-righteousness is also harmful to ourselves because we are blind to our true state. We cannot see our own failures. We cannot see our own shortcomings. We have this false sense of assurance about our goodness, but don't realize that we're standing with nothing underneath of us. Absolutely nothing underneath of us to support us, 
But we have all this confidence in our righteousness, but there's really nothing there to hold us up. We're not right with God when we're trusting in our self-righteousness. We have not done everything that he's asked of us when we're trusting in our self-righteousness. We are not in a position of assurance. We're not in a position to, to rest and feel like all is well because in those moments of self-righteousness, we've placed our assurance in the wrong place. So then this leads us to the tax collector's very humble prayer. So this is Luke 18, verses 13 through 14. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What's this guy's benchmark for righteousness? His benchmark is that he sees himself before God alone. Whereas the Pharisee says, I'm not like these other men, and references all these other heathens and sinners that he thinks he's better than the tax collector doesn't mention another human being. He doesn't even compare himself to another person. If anything, he's standing before heaven. He won't lift his eyes to heaven. And I think what the text is trying to get at, what Jesus is saying is this tax collector sees himself before the God of heaven himself, but won't even lift his eyes to God in heaven. Because when he looks to that God, he knows that he has not been righteous. When he looks and considers the absolute perfection, the majesty, the absolute holiness and righteousness of this God who is incapable of doing anything wicked or evil, when he thinks about that God and his, his almost piercing perfection, he can't even look up at him. But that's who he's comparing himself to. His benchmark is this perfect, perfect God. Wouldn't even lift his eyes to God it's like he's laying himself bare before the Lord and allowing himself to be examined by the very nature and goodness of this holy God. And he concludes that he's a sinner. He concludes that he's a sinner and he throws himself upon God for mercy. If you and I think about God and all the ways in which he is righteous, all the ways in which he is holy, we have no way to assume that we are righteous enough. It's not that we always do every bit of bad that we could possibly do, but we certainly don't do every bit of good that God calls us to do. And if you think of Jesus, Jesus is a picture of God uh, come into the world, God in the flesh, living in a holy and righteous way. And think about the things that Jesus did. God tells us to love our enemies, and Jesus actually comes and does this. Jesus uh, dies on a cross for the very people who are crucifying him, both Jewish and Roman people. He loves his, his enemies faithfully unto death. If I ask myself if I'm, I'm a righteous guy, and I compare myself to that, there are many days when I have to say, I certainly haven't loved my enemies. Sometimes I struggle to love my wife and my children well. Some nights I go to bed and I'm frustrated with myself because I've not loved my own son, my own flesh and blood. I've been selfish and short with him. That's, that's my own kin, let alone loving my enemies. But that's the standard that God calls us to. And if we evaluate ourselves in the light of God's holiness, and if we also take our shortcomings seriously, if we don't sweep them under a rug, there's no way for us to conclude 
that we are self-righteous or righteous. And this is where the tax collector found himself, as he's standing before this God of absolute love, perfect love and perfect goodness. He realizes, I've not loved people the way that I should. I've probably, I've taken money from fellow Jews, and this tax collector may have gotten rich off of that. And he says, I have no reason to conclude that I'm righteous. I've not loved my fellow man as I should. And so he says, the only thing I can do right now is call upon God's mercy. So then Jesus tells us who was actually deemed righteous, and it's the tax collector. Luke 18, verse 14 says this. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other, the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. When the tax collector threw himself upon God for mercy, he was met with mercy indeed. The tax collector who throws himself upon the mercy of God is the one who's declared righteous. And this tells us something about God's nature. God calls us, even demands of us, that we step into the light where he can shine his light upon us and reveal our sin, reveal us for who we are, reveal the darkest and deepest places in our hearts, the things that we've thought and wished that we wouldn't want another human being to know, the things that we've thought and wished that we don't even want to confess to ourselves are there. We don't want to own up to those things. Maybe the things that we've done uh, in secret and we don't want other people to, to know about that. God knows about every one of those things. And as he calls us into the light to reveal this, it is painful, but then it's in his light that we see that he has actually called us into the light for the purpose of forgiving us of every one of those things. Sometimes we have this assumption that God wants to call us into the light because he just wants to beat us up. That God wants to call us into the light where he can shine a light on our sin because he wants to be angry with us. God absolutely wants to shine a light on your sin, and there are going to be moments in your life when you can't get away from it. He will shine a light upon your sin, and many of you have already experienced that. But as he shines a light on your sin, the whole point he wants you to see is, will you see that you're not able to be righteous righteous enough on your own, and will you also see that I've known that all along, and that's why I sent my son to die for you, so that I could cleanse you of every one of those sins. I could take away that unrighteousness, and I could give you my son's very perfection, so that you'd be forgiven, you'd be washed clean, your shame and your guilt is all washed away, and then you can be adopted into my family. You'll have the hope of eternal and everlasting life with me in heaven, and you'll live in joy with other believers who know what it feels like to be washed of your sin and to be welcomed into God's loving arms. He calls us into the light, not just to reveal our sin, but to deal with our sin in the only way that our sin could ever be dealt with. There is no other way to deal with our sin. You can't try to do enough good to make up for your sin. It's not possible. He calls us in the light to take away our sin in a way that no one else could. And that's the joy of realizing that Jesus has come to save the lost and not the self-righteous. The joy of coming to know that he has loved you and wants you to be forgiven and washed clean of every wrong you've ever done or that you ever will do. So tonight, if you're here and you're a skeptic, I'd like to humbly invite you to not reject Christianity because you think that it's a religion full of self-righteousness. 
Christianity, unfortunately, has had many self-righteous Christians within it. But please don't reject Christianity based upon those folks. That is not what Christianity is. Jesus here in this parable tells us Christianity is not a religion for the self-righteous because Jesus condemns self-righteousness. I invite you to dig deeper into the scriptures and see that in the Bible, your revulsion at the self-righteous is shared by Jesus. If you are sickened by somebody in your past who's been self-righteous and who's treated you or treated others poorly, Jesus shares that frustration. And he invites you to see that what he has done is not come to save the self-righteous, good boys and girls who go to Sunday school and can answer all the questions rightly. He's come to save sinners. So I invite you to understand the Christianity that Jesus taught and Jesus gave us. And to Christians, I'd like to encourage us to beware of self-righteousness when it can creep in at different moments. We are really blessed. I don't know if you all know this, but we are really blessed to live kind of at the time and the place that we do. Uh, I'm 40 years old at this point, and I've seen a decent amount of Christianity in those 40 years. In those 40 years, I would say I've seen more self-righteousness within the church than I have seen uh, people standing upon the grace of God and resting upon the grace of God, and humbly running to the grace of God on a daily basis. It's a privilege to live in a time when we hear the gospel preached so regularly, when we're encouraged. uh, I hope at this church, I feel like we do this, uh, but in other places to hear the gospel preached so regularly, because that's not always been the case. And there are even churches now that don't do that. And so the only reason I bring that up is to say, Uh, It might sound strange for us at this church where we focus on God's grace a lot to say beware of self-righteousness. I say that because this self-righteous bug and this infection and this virus can creep in at any moment and it has done so in the the church's history. We need to beware of self-righteousness for creeping in. Be on the lookout for it because it does not put us in a good place with God and it does not put us in a position to actually invite others into the right relationship with God. It doesn't put us in a position to love others. It doesn't put us in a position to represent God and his grace to the world and to those who need his grace. But the best way to ward off self-righteousness, like I said at the beginning, it's not to, to draw a target on your wall and say, this is self-righteousness and I'm going to avoid it. The best way to avoid self-righteousness is to take God seriously in his word. If you take God seriously in his word, and how absolutely majestic and holy and righteous that he is. There's no way you can think that you can be self-righteous enough to earn your way into his presence, to earn eternal life with him. If you take this God of the Bible seriously, there's no way that you can think that he applauds self-righteousness. And if you take the God of this Bible very seriously, You will daily remember his grace for your sins. He will reveal your sins to you as you pour over his scriptures and realize how high his call is for us to love him above all things and all else and how high his call is for us to love other people and to sacrificially lay our lives down to serve other people. And when you see how high that is that he calls us to, there's no way that we'll be able to say, I've been self-righteous and to take pride in our own goodness, we will daily take joy in God's forgiveness for our sins. We will daily humbly come to his cross and say, thank you, God, for your grace. 
from our sins. And that will put us in a better position to love other people. You'll show up at church, you'll show up at community group, you'll go to work, and instead of seeing other people and looking at them as great opportunities to compare yourself to and say, I'm better than them, I'm better than them, you'll look at other people and you'll have compassion for them. You'll say, but for God's grace, I would be like them. And you'll be in a position to love them, show them compassion. In moments of frustration, you'll be able to forgive other people because you'll remember how much God has forgiven you. And in that way, you'll actually actively be more righteous than you would be and than I would be in our self-righteous moments. Remembering God's grace and his, his humble love for us puts us in a position to actually love other people better instead of comparing ourselves to them. And then actually we're living in a more righteous way. It's amazing how God's ways work, isn't it? So tonight I'd like us to all embrace God's grace, his mercy for our sin, and to take that seriously and find the joy that comes from just remembering his, his grace for our sin. But also remember the call to love other people really well and to be demonstrating his grace to, to other people in the way that we live. Lord, we just want to thank you so much for sending Jesus. Thank you that you know the depths of each person's heart in this room. You know our past. You know the things we've done with our hands the things that our eyes have looked at, the hurtful things our mouths have said to others, the arrogant, boastful, greedy, lustful thoughts that we've harbored, the ways that we've not cared for those around us, the ways that we've cared for ourselves supremely and foremost. All of these things, Lord God, you know and you see. And we want to thank you that you've sent your son Jesus to forgive us, to die for our sins, to wash us of all of those unrighteous deeds. We want to thank you that you have not written us off. You've not disqualified us, even though we deserve to be disqualified. But by grace, you have accepted us in spite of the fact that we are unacceptable. You have loved us in spite of the fact that we do not deserve to be loved. Pray for anyone who is here tonight who is not placed their faith in you. They've not trusted you for the forgiveness of their sins. They've not known what it is to be called your child, to receive that love that you have for them. I pray that they would experience that tonight in a deep and a profound and powerful way. For those who maybe need to be called back to that love, remind them of your love. For believers tonight, for Christians who are maybe struggling and feel like it's their job to make themselves righteous enough for you. Grace was something that you give us early in our walk with you, but now it's up to us. Remind them, Lord God, of your grace for them. That grace is how we enter into relationship with you, but grace is how we finish this walk with you. And Lord, I pray that you would make us people who are firmly, firmly focused on you. And as we see your holiness and righteousness, we would not be able to take pride in our own righteous deeds because we constantly see how far short we fall of you and your holiness. And then remind us of your love, your grace, your forgiveness, and make us avenues and channels and conduits of your love in the world. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.